0: Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture with me, Robert Bound. It's a bumper birthday week this week on Monocle 24 as we celebrate 10 years of broadcasting. This means that this very programme also turns 10 and what a decade it's been. And how the hell do you choose the best of a decade? Well, Holly and I thought we'd dodge that editorial bullet. And so get some experts in. Joining me for a whittle stop tour through the past decade in music, art and film are three people who've been reviewing for us for a majority of that period. Chief rock and pop critic for The Times, Will Hodgkinson, curator and art writer Francesca Gavin, and the film critic for The Daily Telegraph, Tim Robey. Um, welcome all to the programme. Lovely to have you here. Thank you very much. Holly, at this point, we'll put in the sound of 10-year champagne popping, <laughs> cheering. A bit like, it'll be a bit like Steve Wright's Big Show, if you're familiar
1: with that.
2: No. No. <laughs> we have much more highbrow things right, to do. Fine,
1: okay. Steve Wright's our tune, I remember that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, Will,
0: we're going to start with you. We're going to start with music. And Will, you've picked some defining moments in albums of the past 10 years. Yes. Starting with Iggy Pop's post-pop depression tour at the Royal Albert Hall in 2016. Yes. If you can remember that far, what was going on? Why was it such a groundbreaking thing?
1: I can remember it very well. It was groundbreaking because Iggy Pop was by then in his 70s and you went along, you're thinking, okay, we all like Iggy Pop, it's going to be fun. The Stooges, who I absolutely love, had come to an end because both of the Ashton brothers, who are at the heart of the Stooges, had died. And I didn't really have that high expectations for the gig and there's something about the atmosphere as soon as it, as soon as everyone walked in not even when he came on stage as soon as he, as soon as everyone walked in there's a very very febrile atmosphere and then Iggy Pop was absolutely transcendental he started off with Lust for life which is you know kind of his biggest <laughs> song but then from then you could see the band and the band was made up of Josh Homme from Queens of the Stone Age and members of the Arctic Monkeys and you could see them trying to keep up with him, you know. It's and these amazing. are very, very yeah. good musicians, but they were trying to keep up with him. And this is a guy in his 70s, you know, I think uh, the first thing he did was basically strip off naked, pretty much. <laughs> then he was in the audience. <laughs> and then,
2: Yeah, exactly. And then
1: from then on, you know, and you could see he's, he's, you know, 50 years of service to rock and roll has rendered his back in a very, very bad way to the extent that he could hardly stand up. But there's something about the moment he came on stage and for the next hour and a half that he was just possessed. And I thought, you know, what is rock and roll? It's a young art form, if you think that Chuck Berry and, you know, Little Richard and so on have only died recently. It's a younger art form than film. It's a much younger art form than visual arts, Um, much younger art form than jazz or classical. But here we are with someone who's towards the end of his life and he's still taking it somewhere. And so for me, and the audience was completely all ages, for me that was, it kind of gave me a lot of hope. For what I do as a prolific as I get older, you know, I thought maybe there's hope. But no, in general as well, you know, it was just so incredibly exciting.
0: Do you sort of strip to the waist when you're trying to when you've got kind of when you're trying to review a record? do you channel Iggy as a rock. I journalist? take my
3: all my clothes off when I listen to Iggy Confidential on Radio Six Music. <laughs> okay. it's it's central, That's yeah. a wonderful
1: thought for Thor on the Friday <laughs> yeah. night. No, I don't think anybody wants to pick <laughs> sipping that, his so, martini you know. a, <laughs> yeah. a buff and in the buff, Tim Roby <laughs> No, I mean no, definitely. Close, stay on during the typing process, but um, <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was amazing. It was just amazing. It was it was really really exciting, and also I would say he's not a he doesn't try and please the crowd yeah. in a sense I mean the crowd is kind of in his possession but he's not there to kind of you know I mean a lot of young artists now feel the need to say how thankful they are to you know for coming out about a thousand times he definitely doesn't do that I think I think the first thing he said is like let's blow the lid off this dump you know have <laughs> yeah. a Royal, royal have at all. Yeah. I thought that was a good way of saying it Stage Invasion beyond stage invasion yeah. and the stage invasion it's become kind of part and parcel you couldn't even tell where the stage was or where he was you know most <laughs> of the time he wasn't on the stage but the audience was yeah. you know it was like yeah. that I mean it was absolutely all over the place it was so exciting I like that you started with a live
0: Thing rather than a record or something i love that because that's what we've missed and that's you know after how many god knows how many gigs you've seen in the last 10 years it's amazing to, for, for something to live so clearly and be so crystalline in your mind as, well, as say, that gig I, in 2016 i
1: think that's why i wanted to mention it because I, I feel and i'm sure everyone here would agree with me that when you're a teenager you have those moments when your heart first opened and so you tend to Think of the gigs you went to as a teenager. Probably the films, I guess. Mm. Yeah. You know, maybe the you know maybe the sort of definitely the books, the things that open you up that much. And as you get older, especially if you do it for a living, you know, I think this is really key. If you do it for a living and you're seeing it all the time, it does become work, and it's also it's it's, it's, it's almost impossible to get fired up in the same way. You can analyze it and appreciate it, but to just love it in the same yeah. way is almost impossible. And that was one of those few moments in the last 10 years or so when i really really was you know back to you know loving it being a 14-year-old, you know, wanted to jump off the stage, which obviously I didn't do because, you know... Be Journalistic horrible. integrity.
0: Exactly, and, and uh, <laughs> yeah. back
1: pain Did withstanding. Did you see the
0: man from The Times? <laughs> <laughs> he went, he went nuts. <laughs> Letter to the editor ensues. <laughs> Wouldn't be good. It's Iggy Pop at the Royal Abbott Hall in 2016 to kick off our 10-year anniversary of what was brilliant. Iggy Pop still, I say clinging on, still, his lust for life um, is ever-present. <laughs> still going. But now we, not, should we dial it down a little bit because we lost so many great artists uh, in the last 10 years and you have chosen out
1: of that heady, amazing mix
0: of, of people,
1: Prince. I chose Prince, I think, because I, to me, Prince is a more complicated figure than David Bowie. When Bowie died, first of all, Bowie had you know, had a very full life and we sort of knew that it was coming and he died at the top of his game. Prince was a very different figure. I mean, he was only 57 when he died. Hmm. And this was the guy who was always uh, lecturing everyone about the evils of drugs. Well, of course, he didn't include prescription drugs because to him that was, that was OK. And I thought that Prince, well, if you talk about live music again, I think it was it was hard to see anyone better than Prince. You know, Prince was you know the ultimate musician, the ultimate professional. But he was more complicated. You know, I don't know if I liked Prince as a person particularly. I interviewed him and I don't think I... I didn't warm to him at all. I found him. I'd imagine he's a tricky, a sort of yeah, slippery very controlling to interview. Yeah. Oh, very, very controlling. I mean, I couldn't tape it. I wasn't allowed to take notes. You know, the whole thing. It was all very, very controlling. But um, I. It's, so, you just to- put your shirt back on and I'll do it properly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, um, but I was interested in Prince. You know, I, I absolutely love the golden run of music that most of us do, you know, from the 80s into the 90s. But well, then, well, what's the.
0: Well, I'm saying well, Love Sexy is my high point. For
1: me, it's Around the World in a Day, but okay. Love Sexy is great. Um, I like the psychedelic touches of Around mm. the World in a Day. But, you know, later on, the albums are really patchy. You yeah, know, before he died in, I think, 20 fifteen, was it twenty sixteen he died, wasn't it?
3: Same year as Bowie, wasn't it? Sixteen.
1: That's right. Yeah. He'd he'd released a couple of albums which were sort of okay, but nothing on this nothing on the same level. But I was very interested in him as an artist and he had started doing not long before he died, he was doing the... the, He called it Hit and Run. He was doing these tiny little gigs.
2: Amazing gigs. I mean, people were queuing, I remember, down the street for all of them. I almost went to one. I was like, I'll never get in and I still regret it.
3: Yeah, I managed to make it into one at Coco and it was the week when he came to London and did one one. every single night. It was incredible.
1: They were amazing. They are amazing. But, you know, he was such a complicated figure and I think that in a sense he might have been the last of... The type of musician that he is, where a because it's pre-internet, he was incredibly good at everything he did. You know, so technically brilliant. You yeah, know? the the physicality was was amazing. We've but also seen
0: so many YouTubeable videos of him blowing everyone out the water
3: just
1: yeah. when he
0: comes on to do a little cameo. That,
1: little, that one yeah.
3: for while my guitar gently
0: weeps, yeah, the where the guitar
3: Harrison, just yeah. disappears up into the rafters <laughs> yeah. at the end. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's it's yeah, it's, it's bananas, incredibly it? good, yeah. incredibly good. But also, I think he was yeah a morally complex figure which in, in, uh, you know, in the music world today was, would be analysed more, you know, yeah. taken up more. I mean, Sinead O'Connor said that he basically tried to kidnap her. You know, I mean, there's a lot of strange yeah. stories out there. You know, he wasn't an angel. Um, and so I'm very interested in the idea that you could have this amazing artist who's absolutely fantastic. And I think you don't have to think worship them as human beings. You know, I think I, that's kind of why I wanted to talk about Prince. I think he was a very very difficult person, a brilliant person. Don't think he was exactly, you know, kind or generous, Do you know what I mean? I don't mm. I think he was pretty brutal, but then he inspired people to do incredible things. Yeah. You know, so it's it's uh, it's an interesting example of someone whose abilities were hugely inspiring and you know what that means. So, yeah, the sad demise
0: of Prince. And finally, we are going to end with a record, Will. It's Sufjan Stevens from 2015, Carrie and Lowell. Now, this got a lot of murmurings of approval around the table before we switched on the mics.
1: Yeah. should we have a clip of it first? Well, the clip I would like to have is my favourite song, which is called Should Have Known Better.
0: When I was three, three, maybe four, she left us at the... What impression did this make on you when you first reviewed it?
1: Well, Sifian Stevens, before this album came out, I thought of him as talented, this sort of like the ultimate liberal arts indie guy. You know the ultimate guy who you know makes albums with the national and wears all the right clothes and isn't it great and isn't it funny <laughs> and I liked him, but he didn't really is is a little bit you know doing and that he more this, head than heart. No, I didn't. I don't know. Maybe, but it was kind of you know a bit indie folky, maybe a little bit uh, quaint, um, and he had this plan to do an album about every single. States in America, which he did to Illinois and Michigan, which is obviously a complete publicity stunt, you know, to get make his make his name. But then this album came out in uh, 2015, and it's about his own story. So Carrie and Lowell is his mother and stepfather. And Carrie had lots and lots of problems. She was had, she had schizophrenic, and she had alcohol problems and drug problems and everything, and he had to deal with this when he was growing up. But Lowell was sort of his rock and I think and Lowell is still now working for his label. He sort of runs uh, Sufjan Stevens' label and he introduced him to lots of music, he introduced him to people like Judy Sill who's a great um, mm. kind of folk singer, uh, people like Nick Drake, all these really sensitive, thoughtful artists from the 70s and it's got that spirit in it. It's very, the music is beautiful, his voice is absolutely incredible. But I think what really got me and what I think it is the best album of the decade is that he managed to tell his own story in this way, which um, you could relate to even if you couldn't relate to it, because who hasn't had an unusual childhood yeah. in some way? <laughs> you know, so it was just, for me, it was it was the perfect album, really. It was incredibly revealing at the same time as not being indulgent. You know, he really did take his life and he turned it into art in the best possible way. Um, I just think the songs are absolutely beautiful. Um there's a song called Death With Dignity, which is obviously about her death and dealing with that. He's very Christian, and he's dealing with his his belief in it. He actually grew up in a cult called the Subod. Subod cult, I think uh-huh. it's called I was
2: it. named in that. It's not a cult. Okay. <laughs> is it? <laughs> no, it was really big in L.A. My parents were in it. Let's just say it was more like... A form of Sufi-inspired meditation. Wow. But yes, yeah, so me and all my sisters, my family <laughs> How were How do you, all do it, you say Subud? Subud, yeah.
1: Subud. Yeah. Okay, so, so apologies for gonna yeah. be the cult. Hey,
2: it's okay. Yeah. It's just say it was very 60s meditation, Eastern-inspired right. philosophy. So that, his, that was his
1: dad. <laughs> so That's incredible that you're into that. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah the, me, you, you all, my, me and my sisters were all named From My parents changed their name. And you kind of had these kind of group... Wow, it, so it was really big and creative, well particularly Los Angeles in the sixties. Oh,
1: that's really interesting. So he was Sufjan is is comes from that. I mean the name and and also he was um, he went to a school. I think it's called the Waldorf School, which is basically like Steiner. Yeah, we okay. know, you know, yeah. very, very alternative. But yeah, his, it's it's a really amazing album, and, and I think it is a once in a lifetime album. I mean, we we're just talking about it with Tim was just saying a moment ago that since then, the Amps have been good, but not on the same level. And I, I did an interview with him after the last one, which is called The Ascension, which I found a bit preachy, actually. I mm. thought it was a bit sort of... Um, God coming to the front. A you? little bit like that, yeah. And I, I was talking to him, I said, well, you know, could you ever go back to the Carrie and Lowell approach of doing something so personal? And he said, I'll never make an Amp like that again, unless it's from within the insides of a psychiatric hospital. It took that much of a impact to do that you know As your pull quote <laughs> i think it was <laughs> so yeah that's my my favorite album of the decade and i would say an album that doesn't date or sound like it's from the decade it mm. could be 60s it could be 70s it could be it could be 2020s it doesn't really matter
0: how beautifully put thanks will for rounding up 10 years in music francesca it is art time cool you've put three standout exhibitions of the past 10 years for us and we start oh god Pierre Huig. Hugue. I, I, I knew I should have practiced this. Yeah. At the Munster Sculptor Project in 2017. So this stuck with you ever since you I saw mean, it. I mean okay
2: yeah it's interesting with my three choices let's say they weren't necessarily the most favorite things I saw in that decade but I think they totally changed what the art world was. However this probably was one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. Münster is a 10-year project that Casper Koenig always curates in Germany. And it's all about public interventions and sculpture. And Pierre Huyg took an old ice rink and essentially turned it into... A living sci-fi installation where there were peacocks running around. He excavated it into crazy piles. There was an app. Bacteria opened and closed the ceiling. It literally was the most strange dystopian weirdness. But I also thought it was super influential in the way that it opened up the idea of art not being made just by an individual, but the idea of the non-human coming into authorship. So, I mean, he'd done this before a little bit at Documenta 13 in 2012, which would have been another thing, which is also I've never seen anything like that ever again, which was this crazy, weird bit in a park with a dog with one pink leg and a beehive on a head of a sculpture and psychedelic <laughs> plants lying around. So, I mean, he really like expanded the entire concept of what immersive installation could be.
0: And his work, I saw his, I don't know the name of it, I can't remember the name of it, an amazing thing at the Palais de Tokyo in Paris, uh, where people, it was a convers- you'd walk around the, the, this kind of smashed up place and people would come and have conversation with you and you didn't know if they were on the tour with you or mm-hmm. whether they were parts of the installation. Mostly, of course, they were. And although all the things you said, it sounds nuts. Just nuts, nuts, for nuts in sake. the best way. But it's super moving, and it's amazingly involving. And you've, you know, his his work, despite me not being able to say his read his surname off a piece of paper, yes, is sort of moving and and, and involving, right? It
2: Completely, does And it really was him at like the peak of his skill before he got very into AI, which I think is a little bit more of like a different thing. Mm. But him, like Philippe Parreno and Pierre Huyg, who collaborated a lot, and that's mm. what you're thinking of. They really reconsidered the idea of time being the element on how you look at artwork as opposed to an object. So how can time and your own experience within something and chance elements all play into everything? And I think that concept of immersive installation became very popularised over the decade after him, let's say in a camper way, a more kind of like bad computer game way. <laughs> but with Huig, it just feels like unlike anything. It's, it's There's so much narrative without anything being said. If that's the way of putting it,
0: where does he sit in sort of terms of is he is he? It's not performance art, but it's Im, it's immersive installation. Yeah, where and he,
2: I mean he does a lot of also amazing other things. You know he does these aquariums which have like blind fish in them or elements of Brancusi sculptures on a crab. I mean, there's I, I remember one of the best things I ever saw him do. It looked like a garden sculpture with like a little bit of water coming out of it, and when you touched it and you were allowed to touch it, it was warm. And it was one of the most strange feelings mm. ever. So for me, like, Quigg without a doubt, the genius of the past decade in terms of contemporary art. But Munster was... I mean, if you look up pictures, it's like looking at a sci-fi film. How big was it? You? It was an entire ice rink. Wow. Like, literally, he... he excavated. I mean, the list of the things that are made. uh, And there's no ice? No, no. I'll give you the list of the ingredients in the exhibition. So it was concrete floor of ice rink, logic game, ammoniac, sand clay, phreatic water, bacteria, algae, bees, aquarium, black switchable glass, conus textile, incubator, human cancer cells, genetic algorithm, augmented reality, and a ceiling structure, and rain.
0: It's like one of those cocktails he used to make at the end of Fry and Lorry. (laughs) (laughs) I just just really love the idea of a sculpture that largely
3: consists, partly consists of bees. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing.
0: How did, I'm going to ask the basic question, basic Brenda here. Will was talking about how, you know, reviewing 100 gigs a year turns it into work. How how did this make you feel?
2: I was, well, firstly, you first heard about it. As like people putting up pictures on Instagram hmm. and everyone was like, it was like a giant buzz to get there and see the thing. Everyone knew that this was going to be probably the last monster because Casper Koning's getting pretty old and it may not happen again. And it was everyone was saying it's like unlike anything you've ever seen before. And I have to say, like, and also I've been so blown away by Documenta in 2012 with this weird, like you're sitting around going, what is the art? Like what is the thing I'm experiencing? What am mm. I feeling? What am I actually looking at? And had, and I'd followed his exhibitions around in different places, trying to work out like what is this thing? And that sense of curiosity. I mean, yeah, I was. I mean, art. Oh, I think I'm. I think I'm in a lucky medium because yeah. as much as you can be burnt, let's say, by looking at a bland painting, there's still so many people pushing. Like what an artwork can be—that I just get. I'm a big fan. I'm a nerdy enthusiast. So I like how it's excited. Of,
0: yeah, it's great that you, your response is so fresh and kind of—you yeah. know—the work is visceral enough for you to really be hit hit between the eyes by it. It's great.
2: Totally, it really, really just gave me joy.
0: So uh, Pierre Huig at the Munster Sculpture Project—that was in 2017. Francesca, next up it's Arthur Jaffer, an American artist. Love is the message. The message is death. This was a twenty sixteen film from him. Yeah. Tell us about this.
2: Well again, it was made in twenty sixteen, but I think it actually popularized in twenty seventeen. Weirdly, all the things I brought up are around twenty seventeen, obviously. Yeah, and me. A, a yeah. big Year for culture. You could have opened
0: one more page in your diary for the culture show.
2: No, but it's true. (laughs) Okay, so obviously Arthur Jaffa's film was, it was originally allegedly made um, as a client for YouTube. He comes from a cinematography background and worked on films and music videos. And then Gavin Brown, the gallerist in New York who now works with Gladstone, um, brought him on and and screened it in his gallery in Harlem. And it's essentially like an eight-minute seven-minute film to Kanye West's Ultralight Beam. one
3: of his Mm. best songs. Yes, and
2: this is pre-Trump Kanye, Mm. (laughs) which I think was a little less sort of controversial. I don't know. I have issues with Kanye now. And it was a sort of montage film that mixed up together images of black triumph and success and cultural excellence with incredibly hard images of violence towards black bodies. This had happened just after St. Louis, is pre-George Floyd. So I think it's, I mean, during 2020 at the rise of Black Lives Matter, Arthur Jaffa's film was shown at 13 international institutions online for 24 hours during the pandemic. It's had a life that has exploded. He won last year's um, Golden Lion at Venice Biennale. Like, the film is incredibly hard. And I also think it was part of, why I think it's so important, it's part of this entire wave of, readdressing what the canon of art history is and what who is important to making art now. And I think Jaffa, like coming off the wave of shows like Soul of the Nation and things mm-hmm. like that, and people like Kerry James Marshall, who I'm a giant fan of. yeah. But yeah, Arthur Jaffa's film, I mean it's obviously he's spoken about it afterwards saying that there's issues where he's a bit like have I allowed white people to like feel things but not do anything which I think is a really valid thing but it totally captured the zeitgeist of this moment of politics in a brilliant way.
0: Those images that that real running for 24 hours you know how does that Stick in your memory. Does that? I mean, that obviously has incredible power out of thought, I, But mm. how does it? Does it age? Does it date? Is it a document of that time? Does it feel feel like it was documented of this time? I
2: mean, you, for me personally, nausea. Yeah, I feel sick when I think about it, as you would do. In a way that, a lot of those images of violence towards black bodies, like they're increasingly saying, please don't share them, because you're exploiting and reinforcing these ideas of death. But it's it, it's you don't forget it. You never think of anything else about it. And Arthur Jaffa's work is increasingly interesting in a collage. Like, you name. Know, He's just had a big show in Louisiana, in Denmark. Yeah. That was really brilliant. It's an incredibly emotional experience and a really unpleasant one, actually, if I'm being really honest. Even though you're still seeing images of just incredible joy and skill in between with it. In the same way that you would with, let's say, Khalil Joseph's Black News, which is another great video installation where you're getting, like, a news channel from a black perspective. but yeah, the Arthur Jaffa film is hard. but he's I, I went to a talk he did around the time that this came out I when mean, he had a certain Time show, and he was really brilliant. He was saying that he wanted film to have the same resonance and power as black music. and I think that's very much his motivation in terms of what he does. And I think in this film he definitely managed that. But yeah. it was also reinforced by this kind of very kind of gospel infused track. So yeah, it's special. it's definitely still retained its power.
0: It is, love is the message. The message is death. It's Arthur Jaffa's film from 2016. Um, Francesca, we're going to end with Faust. Yeah. Who's made a deal with the devil. This is Anne Imhoff uh, for the German Pavilion at 2017 Venice Biennale. What was so momentous about this, okay, listen, this, this hoary old thing, which is Faust?
2: I'm going to say, like, it's not my favourite artwork. And I chose this for interesting reasons. I chose this because I think it really emphasised the nature like like, let's say the Emperor's New Clothes nature nature of the art world but also the kind of vileness that comes with it particularly this was at the German Pavilion of the Venice Biennale in 2017. It was curated by Susanna Pfeffer who's a great curator. Anna Hemhoff had done some really good shows leading up to this notably in the Kunsthalle Basel and she, it was like a real statement, a transformation of the pavilion into this kind of raised platform, dogs, hot androgynous youth in, like, kind of rock clothes, kind of performing. But the thing that really sticks in my mind is the way that collectors, these VIPs, <laughs> were chasing these young bodies around the pavilion like vultures. And for me, I found that somehow indicative of... The way the art market has kind of grown and this kind of desire for consumption of youth and looking for the new thing and wanting something experiential. So I mean I mean Anne So the Im-
0: artist and Anne Nimhoff. Yeah. Was this this was a great success for her that this Huge. was happening, right? I mean this is that's a strange thing to witness.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a weird... I mean, she's done a lot of big things since. Currently, yeah. she has, like, a giant. She's taken over the whole of the Palais de Tokyo in Paris. She's done released albums with Pan. She's had a very successful career coming off the back of this. I mean, she came from, like, a club background, like, as a bouncer. It's very, like, cool yeah. in that sense, you know. And her project, they've all got names like Faust or Angst or Sex. It's all, like... It's like a punk rock T-shirt with, like, <laughs> yeah. with like the cute Bergheim combined. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like, actually, she might have had time to develop her work in a more nuanced way without, like, the uber success. But for me, like, as an art world mo- moment, I've never quite seen anything like the opening of that. There was obviously, like, this huge shift towards performance in general in the art world in the past decade. Like, performance became valid as opposed to seen as something embarrassing. With terrible results in some cases, if I looked at what happened at Art bars all this year. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, Anna, like, her work is clearly at the crux of, like, it's kind of also, like, emotionless in a way. It's kind of got this kind of rigidity. It's like someone smoking a cigarette really slowly.
0: I like that. We'll end it there. Yeah. So that's a, bit, that's a <laughs> nice image. Cool. A very cool, clean
2: yes.
1: image for us to wrestle But yeah, with.
2: 2017. What was about 2017? 2016,
1: 2017. I don't yeah. know. I didn't think about that. When I, when I chose these three, I, it was only afterwards. In fact, it might have been when you pointed it out to me yes. just now. Mm. <laughs>
0: Thanks, Francesca. We're going to finish with Tim Roby. He's going to rev us up first. We're going to Mad Max Fury Road, George Miller's remake. So we ha- shall we shall we have a clip from this and get into the get into the mood.
2: It is by my hand. You arise. From the ashes of this world. We are not things. We are not things. We're- is she taking them?
0: And that was a mad little bit of Mad Max. Thanks, Tim, for getting us back into Mad Max territory. This felt like something that hit us all right between the eyes when it when it was kind of unleashed in cinemas
3: it, it really did yeah I, I i must say i've got a couple of guilty regrets for films i've not chosen out of these three i'm sure and we, yeah, i just yeah. want to say i'm very grateful to francesca for choosing arthur jeffers film because i one of my regrets is not choosing steve mcqueen's 12 years a slave which mm. i think is a, a kind of a monumental piece of art on similar themes um, but the thing about Mad Max Fury Road here I am choosing one of the biggest box office successes of the last 10 years but it's also a monumental work of art it's one of the rare films which managed to be just an extraordinary commercial phenomenon reviving a dormant franchise that you know no one had touched since the 80s and just an astonishing piece of work aesthetically and I think the reason is that George Miller who was 70 when he made it and just the amount of energy that he expended to get this film made this way good lord um, but he thought through exactly why it needed to stand out from the the landscape of blockbusters, because we're you know we're in a, an age of being saturated by by spectacle and kind of marvel overload, and you know digital over over the top CGI at all times to the point where nothing that we're watching on on screen feels real sometimes. But in this film, because it inhabits such a kind of very specific, like very tactile, post-apocalyptic environment, George Miller knew it had to have this kind of totally junkyard aesthetic and it had to feel grimy and as though you could smell it and feel it and taste it. And he managed that. And I think he managed that by insisting that they make so much of this film the old-fashioned way. I don't think you could find a, a film on the scale since something like James Cameron's Aliens, where they went and they shot the film and they shot it stunt for stunt. They had stunt drivers shooting the damn thing. And they knew exactly which bits they needed to kind of superimpose digitally. But they they achieved that in a kind of flawless fusion where you really do not know where one stops and the, uh, the next one starts. And I was just absolutely blown over by it on that level. I couldn't believe how good it was yeah. and how real it felt and how kind of much impact it had on that level. Um, and thematically also, I think it's just amazing as a, as a kind of revival of that story uh, the injection of this kind of the element of Charlize Theron, essentially furiosa and the kind of the, the gender parity between her and, and Tom Hardy's max. The two of them are barely friends. And in fact, at the beginning of the film, they hate each other by the end they they formed this wary alliance, but they could not have got through the experience without each other. And you literally, you, they, they need each other to, to get through the, the, the survival story of that film. Also the daring of the structure of the film, which is a kind of bungee jump where you go all the way down the path in one direction with these characters, get to know them, a long, long way from where you started, and then they made the decision they have to come all the way back step by step. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. a lot of people would have sort of at a script level gone, hang <laughs> on, are we gonna just go back? But that is the kind of genius of it, I think, as a as a as a story. Um so yeah, I was just absolutely exhilarated by it. I don't think there's been anything like it. Nothing Marvel has done of, can, can touch it. It's yeah. Not, not mm. even touch the hem of its garment, you know.
0: It's um so a mate so sort of incredible directorial oversight, kind of perfect storyboarding, guts. And kind of a bit of good old fashioned, yeah, costumes, sets, stunts, reality. I suppose for something so mad and post-apocalyptic to science sci-fi, um, just everything and yeah. sh- and
3: weirdness and just yeah. all the weird touches. You know, the guitarist, Holt, the guitarist, the guitarist, Nicholas Holt's, is Nicholas Holt's character and the weird silver spray oh, thing. So good, and the, I, yeah. uh, I love that. Mediocre and all of that. Just every <laughs> every single soundbite that the film threw out that you could kind of quote and people would know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, there are very few films that go out on that many limbs and kind of managed to stay afloat somehow. Such furious um, energy to it. Yes, right? exactly. I mean, it's just
0: no scene was boring. No, th- I, Yeah. I only saw it once at, I guess, a screening and... And, and that, I don't know, that's lived with me, because I don't think it's the kind of thing you can watch on your TV. But mm. am I wrong? Am I, does no, it, do, I think it, I saw it, it three so, times Three yeah. times
3: in the cinema. They did a reissue of it in black and white, which I didn't see, but people said that was quite an interesting thing to go to. Mm-hmm. Now, I've I've waited, I'll, I'll wait again until it comes back on in the IMAX or something in a yeah. couple of years and, and, and have another go. But I will keep going back to it. It's just It just does not... Leave the imagination. Does it? It yeah. just sticks there.
0: Yeah, it is. It sort of burns. It's clearly. I lo- and again, it's wonderful. All three of you. But it's so wonderful. Tim, having you so so enthusiastic about something. This is a great show, and to to prove that the how how important the critic is, and how much you how much you all love what you do. It's really. It's really. It's it's wonderful. It's bewitching. Mm. So that is Mad Max Fury Road, George Miller, twenty fifteen. Um, a little change of pace with Todd Haynes's Carol. Um, also, also 2015,
3: so 2015. maybe that's my year. <laughs> 2015. <laughs> 2015. Everyone just looked at one page you. of their diary. Yeah.
0: Um, let's have a little clip of uh, Todd Haynes's Carol.
2: How many times have you been in love? <laughs> You're always the most beautiful woman in the room.
0: Therese Balabet. Carol.
2: and then it changed she's still my wife I love her I can't help you with that
0: it shouldn't be like this I know bit of Carol beautiful score too how does this make it onto your onto your list uh, as I say we, it's a big gear change for Mad Max it's, it nicely is. and rightly so um,
3: yeah another one of my guilty omissions is that none of my three films are directed by women and clearly that's been one of the major stories in cinema of, of recent years especially with successive films like Nomad land and, and Lady Bird um, and so I do feel guilty about that but I, I want to sort of do some special pleading here, uh, because exquisitely directed... (laughs) This is not a moral... Exquisitely directed, though the film (laughs) is by Todd Haynes, the, the, the kind of whole calculus of like, you know, we need female directors at all times, it slightly neglects the role of the writer. And I'm not only talking about Patricia Highsmith, who wrote the book, this is based on The Price of Salt, which is a kind of underground lesbian classic from 1952. But I'm talking about the screenwriter of this film, Phyllis Nagy, who's an incredibly gifted and expert playwright whose words in this film are so well chosen. If you've read the book and you sort of study the script, it's just the most perfect piece of, of adaptation. It's absolutely bang on on every note. And the structuring choices she makes with it, which are very playful and, and kind of engaged with film history, she brings in a, a kind of brief encounterish uh, prologue where we meet the main two characters, played by Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara, at sort of right at the end of the story first, and then we kind of go back. And there's this sort of moment of tense waiting at the beginning where we're not quite sure is this going to be their final farewell and so on. So she she has set up everything here for Todd Haynes to kind of make uh, one of his most exquisite films. I mean, it is, it's just the colours in this film. The, yeah. the, the score, as you mentioned, Carter Burwell's score, just the the design elements every, everything that Todd Haynes knows how to do in cinema his his use of the costumes sandy Powell's costumes the, the palette the entire palette that he's working with um I, I think it's sort of the mo- one of the most perfect pieces of filmmaking I think in the last 10 years for sure uh, there's almost nothing I would sort of tinker with it's it's just yeah. seems it seems so complete um and it also is kind of quietly, revolutionary in its way, uh, in the same way that I suppose you could argue Brokeback Mountain had been 10 years before, but to have you know, a same-sex love story made with this kind of classicism, uh, I think, was was something that really stood out for me. I, I remember seeing it in Cannes at the, the first press screening in, um, in 2015 in Cannes, and I was lucky enough to be doing the review, but you have sort of a, a, a barely over an hour when you come out of one of those screenings to kind of get your thoughts down and literally get that file into the, yeah. the newspaper the next day and I was genuinely in tears as I exited the film and I kind of had to rush to a computer. And that is actually the best way to write a review when you sort of have no there's no moment for you to mediate, it just has to pour out mm. um, and I loved getting to write that piece and then interviewing Todd Haynes about it subsequently um, it, it, it really... I mean, another thing that's important about, about the story is that it does raise all this kind of social obstacles between these two women in the 50s, whose who's kind of love affair is in, in some ways impossible. Um, you know, one of them is, is married and uh, has children. And Rooney Mara's character has yet to find her feet in life, really, and doesn't really know who she is as a person. There are all these obstacles in their way. Uh, And the film keeps asking the question of whether they will succeed in in overcoming them. And I think it keeps that question in play so perfectly right to the final shot. It's one of those films where everything the tension of the entire film hinges on the final shot and you still don't know which way it's going to go and I think anyone who's not seen it will not know which way it's going to go and that's, that is a, that is an, again a perfect approach to to a film script for me and to a film in terms of its direction for me when you can make everything pivot right there at the end
0: Carol, Todd Haynes, 2015 thanks Tim um, and your final choice is Bong Joon-ho's Parasite from 2019. What a piece of work this is. What an amazing moment for Korean cinema. Not that it hadn't had lots for 15 years or so, I suppose. Um, But the film... Let's focus on the film itself, Tim. Um... Did you know what was coming when you sat down in the screening room somewhere in Soho, inevitably, maybe, or maybe you saw it at Cannes, I don't know. Did you know what was coming with this thing?
3: I did see it in Cannes, actually. It screened for the same day as Quentin Tarantino's film that year, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And these are two big, heavy-hitting mm. films which would go head-to-head at the Oscars later. Uh, and I think it was it was very well-received in Cannes, but it was slightly drowned out by the hoopla around Tarantino, in a way. When I saw it, I was just immediately sort of agog at at its construction. Uh, For a film to be this clever, this playful, this funny, and this deep, and this dark, and light, and just (laughs) the the range of tones that it manages to pull off is just incredible. You know, you could make a very self-serious film on this subject of kind of class war, I suppose. Uh, But... Bong Joon-ho keeps it incredibly energetic and playful, but he knows exactly when to kind of gut you at the right moments. He knows how to make it matter as well as how to make it very entertaining. Uh, I think almost everyone who sees it just acknowledges what a a brilliant piece of work it is. It's, It's just, it's sort of absolutely perfect in its own um, in its own structure and tone the the middle the sort of whole middle section of the film which basically takes place over one night which is a nice uh, sort of a longer within the script but sort of everything builds to a to a crisis there as the the kim family think they're sitting on top of the roost, and they think they are, and they've, they've managed to kind of inveigle their way into this household through such cunning and duplicitous means, and, and sort of slightly deadly means, uh, and yet they don't realise that the, the kind of social order is going to reassert itself. They're going to be thrown back to the bottom of the pile again, as they always will. And for the film to kind of have the courage to kind of say that and sort of to say that, you know, social mobility is in fact very, very difficult to achieve, much as we might hold it up as an ideal... I think is is a bold and very political kind of statement here, there for for Bong. Um, I, it was just one of the great moments in, in the Oscars as well when it did win, and that was sort of that's sort of the reason why I've picked it. You know, it really, it made history as the, the foreign language best picture winner. But I think the real moment that people remember is when Bong won best director, uh, and he, not only did he get sort of a standing ovation, but he he elicited one for Martin Scorsese on stage. Yeah. And he kind of gave that call back to. Everything that he'd learned from Scorsese, and you sort of get the sense of these great craftsmen who've studied each other's work. You know, he's clearly watched all of Scorsese's films over the years. They've they've taught him to be the filmmaker that he is, and he has advanced in this film to the absolute top of his game. You know, all his subsequent films, sorry, earlier films were you know extremely interesting, genre exercises, very promising. A lot of them quite electrifying. But it's almost like everything kind of coagulated for this one moment, and uh, he he kind of rose up. I love that about it, and uh, yeah, I just again a film that I really look forward to seeing. Whenever I next see it, I'm going to have a great time. I know I am. Yeah, uh, I'm going to love the bit where the peaches get rubbed in that person's face. I'm just going <laughs> to abs- I just know there's all these bits in it that I know I'm going to adore all over again, and uh, yeah, maybe it'll, maybe it will mean something a little bit different the next time as well. I feel like it's a film that we can go back to and look mm. at from different angles. Yeah,
0: because it has all that. St- it has all the. Uh, it has a sort of not necessarily moral structure or a moral backbone to it. I'm sure Bong has, um, but... It's also just a, a mad amount of fun, and as you say, deep, dark, shallow, f- splashy, uh, and and it's kind of got a moral seriousness to it. It's it's amazingly playful to be to be that playful with all of those things. It's just an amazing kind of amazing box of tricks.
3: Really, and one of the, yeah. one of the easiest recommendations of the decade. You can yeah. sort of s- <laughs> sell that to anyone. Almost anyone would go. Actually, that really was amazing. Yeah.
0: Um. Um, Well, Tim, thank you for talking so eloquently through your favourite three films, or your three picks at least. I know you've had to kill some darlings in there, (laughs) as as you all have. Um, And thank you. It's rather touching as well to hear you all loving things so much and filing your carol copy from Cam with tears in your eyes is a wonderful image, but not one that we necessarily want to end on, but it is wonderful it's nice that that you guys love what you do so much and thanks for the last 10 years of being such wonderful guests on this programme and um, being so warm and wise uh, on these airwaves. Um, That brings us to the end of today's episode of Monocle on Culture. Thanks to my guests Tim Roby, Francesca Gavin and Will Hodgkinson and today's programme was of course, produced by Holly Fisher. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bound, thanks for tuning in.